NationalRescueConsultants.com is your source for all education in the USAR world, man versus machine, and advanced survival tactics. Go check out NationalRescueConsultants.com today, a proud sponsor of the Can Man Radio Show. If you're looking to get into a clean radio strap, what about a gear bag that protects you from the carcinogens that we're exposed to on a daily basis? Well, go check out SGT Fire Bags today and use Can Man for 10% off. Get off your ass, canners, and get ready for some extreme tabletop exercises. It's time for the Can Man Radio Show. And now your fearless leader, the senior canner himself, Jason Liska. Welcome to another great episode of the Can Man Radio Show. And today we're sitting here in Columbus, Ohio with, uh, I guess, a tournament of champions in the room this evening. But we have a special guest that we're going to talk to uh, amongst the other guests we have inside the studio slash auditorium slash the room we hijacked for the evening. I know things sound a little different tonight and I got to thank Nick Papard here from you know, make do because he saved my ass this evening. And without his generous uh, donation of a microphone, because I spent $200 on a mic that didn't want to fucking work tonight, mixed with Apple technology, he made things right with his awesome USB mic that is connected in beautifully. So it'll sound great, I promise. But this evening I've got uh, uh, very close friends in this room. I've got uh, Jacob Johnson, do your damn job. If you know of him, we've podcasted before. We did in, uh, you know, uh, a Georgia conference. We'll leave it at that. I've got uh, Andrew Starnes, and he's uh, he's much bigger in person. I think he's got about a 56-inch chest at this point. I'd almost say if you put a wig on him, he would be a Fabio-like character with those blonde eyebrows. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> Way too much to drink. You know, and, and again... <laughs> You know, and again, I'm only on my third old fashioned for the evening. So if that tells you anything and I've got Nick Papard here from Make Do and the North Florida Fire Expo, which is coming up in March, which uh, both Jake and I have the privilege of uh, being instructors at the, uh, this upcoming year and Andy Starnes as well. And we've got uh, no, Andy, I was wrong. No, I'm not there yet. I, I'm working to your step. Now, now I'm an asshole because I told everybody Andy's going to be there. Nick. OK, well, you know, again, if, if we're going to soup sandwich anything, we're going to soup sandwich this podcast tonight, okay? You know, and it literally, it took two hours to get this thing set up. So we're going to make this thing sound as authentic as we can. And Jake introduced me to someone earlier uh, in the week, and his name is Jason Corthell, and he's a battalion chief. And oddly enough, he used to be the driver. Uh, for the great Jacob Johnson. And now being both battalion chiefs, I've heard all the stories about, you know, the fact that Jake almost ended up in the back of a Toyota Corolla one day and the little buddy conversation after that, that uh, transpired. I thought that was a very moving story. But, um, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past and mental health and wellness is probably one of those topics that, and don't mind the beeping in the background, mental health and wellness is probably one of those topics that you really can't talk about enough because there are so many different perspectives out there when it comes to what that really means uh, to the fire community and, and what different states do and, and what individual departments actually do when it comes to um, helping their own. And Jason, 
uh, is actually someone who has taken the lead on this in, in Pearland, where both he and Jake are from. And we're going to get into that this evening. We're going to talk about Jake's um, organization, what he's doing with it, how it came about. And before we go any further, I just kind of want to get a feel. So, Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, actually, I resigned from Pearland in 2016 with the Cypress Creek Fire Department, where I'm at now. That's where I implemented the program. See, now I'm a bigger asshole because no, I called no, it Pearland, you know? You're good. You're good. You know, I, I, I did work for Pearland, and that's where uh, Jacob and I worked together. I guess he was driver. And it was awesome. Andy, um, would you go get me a fourth uh, old-fashioned, please? <laughs> uh, I feel like we're in the mood here for this, okay? That's all I'm going to uh, say there. But go ahead. You were saying, okay, so keep going. Yeah, so the, the way that, um, you know, transition work from Pearland to Cypress Creek uh, to become, uh, you know, battalion chief or district chief, chief officer in general, um, I realized that I need to uh, somewhat find my niche in the fire service Okay, and uh, provide my department with some type of uh, service or benefit. Uh, we had SCPA already checked off. We had some we had rescue um, checked off, we had swift water rescue checked off, all these chiefs and officers had all their little niches and I didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. And my fire chief approached me and he said, hey man, uh, I've been looking at this wellness fitness initiative stuff, would you be interested in heading it off? And I said, yes, of course, I'd be more than willing to put gym equipment at every station. Okay. And that's how it started. And from gym equipment, it went to, hey, if we're working on the physical side of things, why don't we start looking at the mental health side of things? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's that's how it came to fruition. Is uh, I started to the low hanging. I put you know workout equipment at each station. Before I got that position, I was uh, we were all members of the gym, the local gym, and. Probably 20% of it actually used it. So the low hanging fruit was to put workout equipment in every gym and I thought my job was done. And then I uh, came, uh, came up upon uh, Dr. Liz Fletcher, who was a former volunteer for mm -hmm. us. And uh, she is a professor at U of H mm -hmm. uh, School of Business, the Bauer School of Business. And she said, hey, have you ever thought about mental wellness being part of the wellness and fitness initiative? And I was like, shit, no, I haven't. I was like, that's awesome though. And so we just dove into this thing and started figuring out um, what is best for our people at Cypress Creek. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of learning, um, educating process, we realized that this is bigger than just one um, one department. It mm -hmm. needs to be shared throughout um, the fire service because a lot of times, um, the mental health awareness and suicide awareness um, stops there. Mm -hmm. Bringing it up to an awareness level um, is great. It's important. It has to happen, but there wasn't a lot of um, implementation of programs that we did out there. So I think there's probably also a deeper purpose behind you doing this. And it, it kind of came up in, in conversation uh, earlier this evening at dinner. And I kind of want to delve into it because you had your own Mayday situation. Mm -hmm. And I want you to talk a little bit about that if you're, if you're comfortable. Because if, if, if I'm gathering all of this correctly, your, your motivation comes from a personal experience, something deep that happened to you that we pray never happens to any one of our brethren out there. We hear it and it, 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 it's 
the one thing that stops our hearts when we hear it on the radio, whether it's in a recording or it's live and you're on the other end of that radio having to make that decision to activate a writ team as command and get people in there to save our ass. Um, why don't we talk about that? What what was the situation and, and what exactly uh, do you do you want to share about that? Uh, if you got time, I can share the whole story. I want you to share the story. That's the purpose. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, March of 2015, um, I was responding to a mutual aid flyer um, just outside of our district. Mm -hmm. district. Uh, it, was a, it was already upgraded to a two-alarm apartment fire. Uh, we turned down one of our main thoroughfares, which is 1960 Highway 6. Um, saw a good uh, column from the street that we were driving down and told the boys in the back that, hey, we had a working fire. Obviously, everyone gets a little more ramped up for that situation. Um, that day on the truck, I had um, somewhere around 55-something years of experience behind me. I had a Houston Fire Department captain, a Houston Fire Department driver. I had another captain from a smaller department on the truck with me. So needless to say, we had a bang up crew. And, and not to interrupt, but that is something that we, you know, we have part-time jobs in the fire service, but in Texas, you had actual Houston guys working part-time on the apparatus with you. So these okay. are guys that, that have seen fire, you know, all their careers, they know what they're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, me in the right front seat, that day was truly a, a privilege to, mm -hmm. to ride with them. And, and I felt really comfortable to, um, be able to make an efficient, you know, attack on this fire. Mm -hmm. we showed up, so we showed up. Um, we made contact with the uh, district chief who was in command. He told us that we need to meet up with Engine Nine in the attic, mm -hmm. and uh, basically we're going to go to the Charlie side of the structure. Uh, Engine Nine had already made access to the Alpha side of the structure. We're going to meet up with him in the attic and basically sandwich this fire. Okay. It was already up in the attic. It was running the roof. There was no fire stops. It was old 1970s construction. Um, and so we pulled the, we made an apartment lay, stretched from engine uh, 10 to the back of the structure with a two and a half inch gate Y, laid our inch three quarters, started working our way up the, the stairwell, charged the line. Uh, we got up to about the second, we got to the second floor landing. Um, and I had made my way up to the two and a half landing of this apartment complex. And my buddy said, hey, I need you to come back down. I need more slack. And I said, okay. So I went back down the stairs and I started hopping more hose. To him. And he was still on the second floor landing. As I was talking to him and he was telling me what he needed, um, something, something kind of bumped into him. And I didn't know what it was at first. I was looking down. And I just instinctively kind of grabbed him and pulled him towards me. And then all of a sudden, the whole landing and the staircase came down on top of us. Jesus. And uh, he was pinned. He's a, he's a bigger guy like me. I stand 6'4", about 300 pounds, and he's right around the same mm -hmm. size as me. But his head got put in between his legs, kind of folded in half. And the, uh, the landing was held up by the bottle of his air pack and the brim of his helmet. That's what was holding up the landing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, him and I both would have been crushed, gone. Um, but all that weight was on him, causing him to pass out. He lost consciousness. Uh, I fell on the stairwell, and so I had literally the stairs up, and then the stairwell above me fall down. And I had my right arm pinned against me like this, 
my left arm was extended and I wasn't able to call a mayday because somehow during that process, my radio got dislodged mm-hmm. and off it went. Um, there's radio traffic with me talking, so I knew I had it at some point. Okay. Um, but after that, they never they never found the radio. Even when they went back to do the report and the near miss and all that, they never went back and they never found it. So I don't know where it went. But um, <clears throat> at first, I you know tried to push myself up. That didn't work. Uh, I liken it to like when your dad used to hold you down and tickle you, and you felt kind of helpless. Yeah, you know, like one of those feelings. Like that's what it was. And being six four, three hundred pounds, there's not much that can hold you down. No, you're and, you're you're a hoss. Yeah. So yeah. you know, having that feeling automatic helplessness just I mean just snaps into it, and you're just like, holy shit, am I really in this situation right now? Like, is this how it's going to go? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> because you don't know, you don't think. Is it just the stairwell? You think the whole entire building just collapsed on? I had no idea that it was the stairwell and the landing. Granted, I mean it was probably eighteen hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, you feel like the whole building has just come down on you. So I had my left arm exposed, my right arm here um, pinned underneath me was my uh, regulator hose, and so I couldn't look up to try to see where my buddy was because mm-hmm. every time I looked up my face would lose its seal from the mask and air would shoot out Okay. so I had to keep my face pinned down on my mask but I was trying to scream for my buddy to see where he was at because I didn't know if he was in front of me to the right if he would fallen behind me nothing and so um, I kept screaming for him and I would reach up out of my my mask was on my face, um, I don't know, they can't see what I'm doing with my hand. My mask was on my face, but I kept looking up out of my mask to see if I could get a better view of him. Um, smoke and fire conditions were still somewhat present. Mm-hmm. We weren't obviously on top of the actual fire. There was some embers and some smoke that was making it a little bit difficult Okay, um, to kind of voice what I was trying to get out to him. And when he woke up, um, it was a lot of, um, I don't know, morbidity okay. uh, going on. Yeah. Um, you know, saying this isn't going to be, this is going to be how it's going to go. You know, tell so-and-so I love him. And this is somebody who I grew up with. I was there when his wife went to labor with their first child. Like, this isn't just like a buddy from the firehouse. No, it was your brother. Say, yeah, this is my dude. Um, so I did my best. I did what I could. Like I said, I had my left arm exposed and extended in front of me. And um, he was on the landing. He kept saying that his legs were burning and he was on fire is what he kept saying. And so I would do my best to try to sweep underneath and I could feel his leg. I, I probably had about three inches of his leg. So I would grab his pants just to let him know I was there. But I would try to sweep underneath as much as I could to get the embers off of him because he was sitting on on burning wood mm-hmm. and it was burning his legs and his ass so he kept telling me hey man i'm burning like it, it hurts i'm burning and you know a bunch of other words and cuss words and everything else that was going on mm-hmm. um and then interestingly enough our third guy that was on the nozzle the whole time had ridden the the collapse down and maintained the nozzle he had his mask and helmet ripped off and had ridden the collapse down and he maintained the nozzle and eventually he heard me and my buddy talking about the, the how hot it was and the issue with him burning his legs and he just turned the nozzle on and soaked his throat down 
uh, to the point where my boy, boy was like, turn the fucking nozzle off, <laughs> you know? <laughs> wow. So that was a good to hear, but yeah. Um, You're still you know, trapped. We're still trapped. And so um, I heard a Mayday go out from the division chief that was on the Charlie side, Charlie division chief, sent out a Mayday for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just, you know, thankful that that day they had a division chief in place. That's something that we really practice. Um, I, I know in the departments I've been with, uh, Charlie Division Chief is probably one of the probably the second most important spot on the fire ground for us because we don't have eyes back there. Yep. Um, so Especially on a multifamily. Right. And an apartment, yeah, apartment yeah. complex, multifamily, you have multiple crews working, you got to get somebody in the back with the eyes. So that Charlie Division Chief um, called out the Mayday for us, and then um, Engine 10's captain uh, called out two Maydays because they had one of their guys go down on the collapse as well um, from our neighboring department. So uh, initially it came out with four firefighters trapped, uh, three firefighters ended up being legitimately trapped, and then me and my buddy were the last two to come out. Uh, he was he was the last one to come out, and I, had, I struggle with this sometimes when I talk about it because um, I don't want to make it sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I got the privilege and the honor to go through fire school with this man and spend time with him and eat dinner with him and break bread with him and his family. I know his parents, I know his whole family. And I always told him, hey, bro, if you go down, I'm with you. Like, I, I will get your ass out. Like, we're going out together. And you did that day. And that day, uh, when they came, they they rolled the staircases off of me. And um, I said, I, I'm not going anywhere. I said, unless he comes out with me. I said, that's the only way I'm going. And it literally took probably three, two, three minutes to get him out of the rubble before he was able to tell me, it's all good, get out, let's mm-hmm. go. I'm getting out too, we're good. And so in that whole kind of melee, um, I ended up uh, having a very minor head injury. It was like, not even a concussion, but uh, I tore my knee up completely, tore my ACL, MCL, PCL, uh, tore my meniscus and everything in the whole debacle. Um, got shipped out to the ambulance, obviously. And um, <laughs> I was in the ambulance, and this is a little bit more of the com- comical side of things, but. I was in the ambulance and the medic wheeled me back and he's like, hey, bro, like you can't put the sheet over your head when we're rolling you into the ambulance. I think someone died. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want the press and the because we had helicopters flying. Yeah. I mean, we're right outside of Houston. So something like that goes down. You're have they were there. Three, four helicopters. You're going to have yeah. news crews, so on and so forth. Then you hear firefighters injured. They're going to show up. So I was like, man, I put the sheet over my head. I was like, I'm not trying to be all out there like that. <laughs> So they went back in the ambulance and they said, hey, uh, on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain? And I'm like, mm, maybe. And he goes, ah, it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what your pain is, bro. You're going to get morphine. So mm-hmm. just make up a number. I was like, seven. So he stuck me with morphine. Lo and behold, the five inch was running across the back of the ambulance. So they couldn't get out. So they took me out on a stretcher again. They put me in the back of another ambulance. And that's where my buddy was. My buddy was on the bench. Um, and we'll be back. Next medic, hey man, uh, what's your pain level? I'm like, I'm good, dude. Like, I just got hit with morphine. He's like, no, hit me again. So now I'm like up here. My buddy's emotional. I'm emotional, obviously. Almost just died. And uh, there's these helicopters flying around. He looks at me and he's like, hey man, no one can ever find out about this. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Wow. And so I was like, dude, we have an opportunity right now to share this story in fire service and push this, you know, experience beyond just what you and I have in this ambulance right now. And say that at the time, but I was thinking it, you know, it was just like how how morbidly special it is to be able to experience something that you train for for so long and come out of it alive mm-hmm. uh, when some people don't you yeah. know and, and so i wanted to take that moment um in that moment i've been going through a divorce i just got divorced um so all the financial i'd moved into an apartment i had three babies i mean i had a lot going on and then this happened and i was like man like I don't know who, I don't even know who the hell to call right now. Like, mm-hmm. Who do I tell that, hey, I'm in the hospital, come pick me up and take me back to my apartment? You know, and this guy, Jacob, over here, found out about it and hauled ass to the hospital and he was there. And I had some family there with me and stuff like that that I never thought would know or care or anything. It was it was, it was a wild experience, man, but that, that all led into what we're talking about right now. So you're a Marine? Yes. Yeah, four years. Do you think that played a factor in your will and determination? I do. Um, I, I I don't know where the fortitude came from. I, I, I'm going to say this is when I, I also teach at the college. Okay. I'm, I'm an instructor at the fire department uh, down south. Jacob and I both are. Mm-hmm. And um, every time I teach, I teach with a passion knowing that if these I'll say kids, but some of them are grown men and women. But if these kids ever get in the position, they're going to rely on this because I did. And I went back. I didn't necessarily go back to the Marine in me, although that, that probably played, played a part subconsciously. But I went back to my training mm-hmm. and air conservation and understanding that I couldn't leave my face out of my mask because I didn't know how long I was going to be down there. Major. And the first thing that I did is reach for my radio to call a mayday. Mm-hmm. That stuff is trained and it's ingrained because of my training. Yep. And had I not had that training and had I not had those people and leaders and instructors that came alongside me and provided that, I wouldn't have known what to do. And so when I teach, that's what I teach to. I'm going to get Jake's perspective. And if Andy wants to jump in as well, because Jake has a very deep feeling about this scenario, because we, we had a little bit of talk about this before. And of course, Nick, if you want to jump in as well, but I want to look at the timeline here. We're talking 2015. You had Houston guys on your truck and just two years prior to that, four firefighters died in the Southwest end collapse. Correct. And that was a very, very, um, well, that was a rough time in the fire service for Houston. I remember it was my report I did for company officer in, in uh, fire officer one. And I had the, the pleasure of meeting chief Alexander over the phone and, and he forwarded me all the information um, that was obviously publicly available. Um, but that being said, it was nice to have a contact because he was one of the authors, if I'm not mistaken, of the AAR for the Southwest Inn. But then you look at San Antonio in that same timeline and you talked about the Charlie side aspect. And if you look at what happened in San Antonio, where they go into a strip mall and there's the Charlie side exposure wide open and another wind driven event. And it, it led to the flash 
obviously the build up the whole component of what led to their demise you were in another situation just before that with a structural collapse with houston guys and i'm wondering did that play on their psyche at all knowing that just a few years prior they lost four of their brother uh, well three and a sister in that southwest did anything come about from that in that mindset because that had to be around that time frame that had to be in their minds and even in your mind as well i would imagine because that was pretty fresh yeah no it was really fresh i remember exactly where i was i was working when the southwest in fire occurred i was working my part-time job at a small apartment um outside of right outside of houston another neighboring department um and i was there with houston firefighters again at a part-time job and they were watching their brothers and sisters that they knew they knew these folks that were trapped that were stuck and they were phones were blowing up and i mean it was so intimate i i didn't say a word for the entire shift because mm-hmm. like what do you say you know what do you say when you're watching your coworkers and your brothers like going down yeah I mean, and, I, and i will never compare anything directly to 9 11 but i can't imagine you know that scope you know i mean it's, it's these fdny firefighters yeah. know, experience the same thing on such a mass level and i experienced a thousandth of that just by watching these houston firefighters in the southwest in fire and that killed me inside but as far as the psyche of the houston guys after the collapse it was i could tell that it it you know rattled them a little bit um i don't know if it was because of the you know how close it was to southwestern fire or not but uh, they were so like it, i don't know it, they were so um just caring for the right word it, it's a soft mm-hmm. word right it's no but it's it's a word. strong word but uh it's not a soft just, word. just as, as brothers i mean literally anything that i even didn't need they would provide mm-hmm. hey man we're here for you hey this that uh, i mean i could just tell that the the seriousness that they took it with was stepped up a notch because of what they had just experienced yeah with I, and i talked to uh tony tony Livesay, Livesay, Livesay. Mm-hmm. i talked to tony Livesay, and he was uh he used to firefighter that was caught in the southwest fire he got hurt he, i think he had some uh brain damage and damage to his hip and his leg and couldn't do the job anymore and and we got to talking at a cook-off and he met me and i met him for the first time and it was so emotional but he came up to me and he he looked at me like i was someone that he wanted to talk to and to like hey man like good job on getting out of that bro like you're a badass and, I, and i'm like dude you are you know like you're my idol he got hurt rescuing bill like, who passed away a few years later right yeah mm-hmm. god rest his soul but Tony, the way he described it, he was climbing into the structure to get Bill, and he was half in a windowsill or, or door frame, and the structure collapsed down literally on half of his body, and that's where he lay. He was trapped, and that was Tony's story, you know. And Tony talked to me about everything, and most of the things that we said will, will stay between him and I. But it got to the point where you know he was putting post-it notes on the the bathroom me are saying i already brushed my teeth today because he would go back do it again go back do it again go back do it again 
told me, he said, my favorite thing is doing laundry. He's like, I like doing laundry because I know, I know when it's done. Mm -hmm. I have put it from the washer to the dryer, the dryer, I folded the clothes. I know that it's done. A control aspect almost. He's like other menial tasks. He's like, I don't know if they're done or not. So I'll just redo them all day. Wow. That's how I live my life. And it was just powerful, man. Like that, that whole kind of time frame, that negative time frame was just, uh, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. You know, it was just awesome. Not, not in a good way, just awesome. Okay. Jake, you called it one of the worst days of your life. Mm-hmm. Come on in. Let's talk about the moments that led up to that very instance. Well, I mean, you know, for me, Jason just, he's my best friend. So, you know, we worked together for a long time. He drove me for a long time. We trained rookies together. We, you know, mentored together. And uh, we've been through the highest of highs of our careers in our personal lives and the lowest of lows. So when I lost my daughter, you know, he was there for me and one of the only ones. And uh, when he was going through his divorce and everything with his kids, I was there for him. And we took each other to sporting events. We drank beer together. We lifted each other up when we could. And uh, it was that day I was watching that fire on the news. And I knew he was there because I knew I worked for the fire department that he was mutual aid. And so I, I remember telling my wife, she's blow drying her hair. I said, Jason's on this fire. And it came across and it said four firefighters trapped. It said uh, two of them hurt. And so I texted Jason and at that point in time in Jason's life, like if he didn't answer his phone, something was wrong. <laughs> right? Fair enough. <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't answer me. And Jason always answered me, even on fire. I mean, he would answer me. And uh, I told Lawrence that Jason's trapped and I started changing. And then his dad called me from Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And then I knew it was bad. And so he told me, he said, hey, I was told Jason has a massive head injury. Can you please go go check my son? I said, I'm already there. And so I drove to the hospital and when I got there, thankfully it wasn't, um, but he was, you know, Jason was dazed and he had been given morphine and, and all the stuff. And the first thing on Jason's mind, I'll never forget this. It was, this is how I know that Jason is the guy that he is. And this is why I push so hard that he needs to get his information out there. The first thing he told me was, can you go to the ICU and check on my grandma? Not me, not Gil, not, you know, thank you for coming. Like, I didn't expect to see his stepdad and stepmom there, but they were there. And, um, but he said, can you go to the ICU and check on my grandma? I was like, yeah, man, where's she at? You know, and so I ran up to the ICU and checked on grandma, came down and told grandma's good. And then we just sat there all night until they discharged him. And, um, you know, it was, it was, I say it was the worst day for me because that hit home. That was my friend. That was my driver. That was the guy that we sweated together, we trained together, we fought fire together, and we had so many good and bad times. And literally, I go from cooking dinner, watching the news, to almost losing my friend, you know, and losing a brother. And and not only that, but the, the buddy that was stuck with him was somebody that I knew, you know, and, and then when I got there and found that out, it was like, well, now I have two, you know? And, uh, and this event made our brother leave the job. And he's never been a fireman again. And his whole family, he was a fifth generation fireman. And um, so it was just an event that, you know, maybe doesn't need to be relived all the time or need to be talked about all the time, but all the good that came from that bad moment that Jason's been able to, to do needs to be shared and it needs to be put out there and it needs to be, and, and, and he needs to be invited to teach his class and, and to help because it sounds to the common guy like a minor event but it had major impacts. 
And those major impacts led him to a, to a passion that a lot of firemen don't even have in these days when it comes to mental health and physical fitness and, and, and keeping ourselves mentally and physically ready for the job. And because we always think of it as, I need to be mentally prepared for the things I'm gonna see. I need to be mentally prepared for the things I'm gonna deal with at home. But I believe that the main drive and passion behind Jason is, I need you to be mentally strong to be able to handle what will happen to me. Yeah. I need you to be mentally strong to be able to handle a collapse or be able to handle a mayday situation or be able to handle one of your buddies in that situation yeah. so you know how to help them. Because at the end of the day, after we dropped him off that night at his house, I didn't know what else to do for him. Mm-hmm. I had no clue. Peer support wasn't there, you know? So other than, hey, bro, let me come to your house and bring you some meals and you make sure you rehab your knee and drink some whiskey with you. I didn't know how else to help my friend. It was it was, it was was the most emptyless, empty feeling that I've ever had in my life and in my career because I just saw my buddy sitting on a couch with a machine bending his knee and I didn't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think the the passion comes from. And that's, that's what firemen need to know is like, we need to be training. You need to be here at Firehouse Expo. You need to be here at FDIC. You need to be here at all these micro conferences because at the end of the day, we have to prepare for that worst day, right? Basil teaches it all the time. One, one bad, bad day. day. One bad day. Jason had his one bad day and he survived. And now he's going to pass on his passion because of that. But how many firemen out there are not preparing for that one bad day? How much complacency exists in the fire service today? And I think every one of us can probably throw our two cents in on that. And Andy, you're, you're sitting there pondering. Do you want to throw some two cents in? Um, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Because um, I believe there's two types of courage. There's the courage that goes into the burning building. And there's the courage of a man or a woman to open up their wounds. That That's a painful experience to share it again for the hope of one thing help somebody else right we read NIOSH reports not the Monday morning quarterback them we read them to learn and honor what for what they went through so thank you for doing that the other side of that is this what did he just say he sees you sitting there dropped you off and he said I didn't know what to do I feel helpless one of the passions I have since I got into behavioral health and peer support is that we are trained to handle anything thrown at us you know, when you said caring is a soft word, firemen are good at the hard stuff. We suck at the soft stuff. Uh-huh. We have zero skills across this country when it comes to firefighters who are struggling. I said this in class this morning. Do you know that more firefighters take their own life than anything else? And you know what? I've had battalion chiefs call me at 12 o'clock. I had a firefighter with a gun in his hand. I told him to call EAP. And I said, are you kidding me? Yeah. You got the courage to run in a burning building, but you don't have the courtesy to take your time to go sit down with him and just listen to him? Yeah. And he's like, well, I didn't know what to say. I said, you ain't got to say a dang thing. You got to show up like you did. Mm-hmm. He didn't need you to have any skills other than the fact a skill of this Jacob Johnson his friend who showed up ministry of presence I'm here not what you say that you are there it has nothing to do you're everybody here is married she don't want you to fix it when she's talking she wants you to listen <laughs> took a while to figure that yeah, out amen. yeah amen so when you're hurting do you want somebody to come in and give you some quick fix solution no, no. you're hurting yeah. that's not gonna get rid of the pain you know what's gonna help 
somebody who cares enough to sacrifice their time. That's, right. and that's what you did. But the problem is, is we're not training firefighters to handle that stuff. We're not giving them the courage to say, hey, I want you to be aggressive. I want you to be skilled. But when it comes to all this stuff you're going to face in a 30-year career and how it's going to affect your marriage and your kids, we ain't training them for none of that. And that's why we have a 75% divorce rate and the highest suicide rate next to the military. And that is something we shouldn't be proud of. Yeah. If you want to have the courage to die in a burning building but to save someone's life, how about we make the greatest rescue we ever could, which is talk to our brother and sister who's struggling. Because if you hadn't have been there for him, who knows how he might have turned out. You know how many firefighters go through what he went through? And then never share it, go in some deep, dark hole of depression, lose the job, lose their identity, lose their marriage, lose their kids, ended up taking their own life mm -hmm. because no one came alongside them and helped bear their burden. So I applaud you for doing that. And I think we need to do a better job of if you can size up a three alarm fire, you sized him up because you knew what? Hey, what did you say? He didn't answer my phone. He's working. He's trapped. I'm on my way. Showed up. What did he ask? Need to go check on my loved one. You went and did that. You took him home. You were there. Other than knowing what to drink, drink whiskey with him. At least you knew his favorite drink. I wouldn't even <laughs> know that. That's a, that's what we call the courage of compassion. Yeah. Compassion means to suffer with. Mm -hmm. How many people have the balls to do that? Okay, you may have the 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 courage to run in that building. I don't know too many people who have the courage to do what you did for him. So thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate it. Well, and, and he did it with me. You know, I mean, when, when I lost my daughter, I was by myself. So, you know, it was me and my wife and no one in my family, nobody had ever experienced that. And I focused so much on my wife that when I came to work, it was him. And he would sit in my office and, hey, are you all right? Are you this? Are you that? And so I'll never forget, man, they sold briskets for me. They did everything they could to raise money for us. And, and, you know, long story short, my wife and I had to do in vitro. It took us eight times to do it. And it was just a lot of money. And the fire department and Jason and everybody surrounded me and brought me up and said, here's this money so you can go do another round of in vitro to try to have a kid after Lily passed. And it was, it was uh, at that moment, I told my wife, I said, I will do anything and everything for any member of the Paraland Fire Department. I said, but especially Jason. And that's why even though he's left and moved on and works and, has done great things in Side Creek. He's never going to be anything to me more than a best friend because of everything we've been through. You know, I mean, Jason could spit in my face tonight, and I still hug him more. <laughs> I mean, because nothing will be able to will be able to conquer what we have accomplished together. And and yeah, we're together forever, and uh, that's why we're here, and that's why tonight's you know the night for him, and and it's all about getting his passion out there because each and every single one of us spread our passion and. And everybody deserves an opportunity, and, and if anybody deserves it now, it's him, and, and uh, we need to keep passing it on. Nick, do you have anything you want to throw in there? I mean, you guys have summed it up pretty well. Um, you know, that old saying, no one knows, or no one cares how much you know. They care how much, or they know how much, yeah, I'll mess that all up. <laughs> no. <laughs> no one cares how much you know, they, they you know, they basically, they, they want to know that you care. I mean, that's that's the you know the gist of it. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, especially uh, things easy. We're all so busy, and we get so caught up in our own life sometimes that we miss those signs. We miss the you know things that you know, people suffering or struggling. And, um, it's easy. It's easy to kind of then you have a, a moment like you had, brother, and uh, that's a. It's a 
sobering reminder of you know how frail life really is when you think about it. I mean, it's uh, we see it all the time, but we get numb to it until it's personal. We get numb to those those struggles until it's personal and it hits home. Um, and uh, you know, I can tell you that it, you know we all go through those those seasons in in life and in our careers where high points, low points, but uh, something like that can certainly shake you, oh, yeah. get you, get you, you know, get your attention. Um, and it's, I think it's important that when, when people go through stuff like that, that, you know, just be there, be there for your people, be there for your brothers. Um, like, you know, it, it's, it's, we're, we're all, you know, for the most part type A people and, you know, we don't want to ever admit we need help. We don't ever want to admit that we're, you know, maybe got a chink in the armor. Uh, but the fact is we all, we all have those moments where, you know, things aren't as, uh, you know, you lose that, you know, passion for the job because you're you're burned out, or yeah. you know, you hit that wall, or you have that call that just nags at you. Um, you know, we had a call several months ago, uh, and and uh, you know, thankfully, there's resources in place now that were, you know, even a decade ago weren't there. Even, even shooting five, six years ago, they weren't there. Uh, but had a pretty traumatic uh, call with a, a pediatric drowning and. A crowd and a lot of just a lot of a lot of high stress and a lot of questions and you know and, and uh, we had some guys that uh, that was the first time they'd ever experienced something like that and and it was it was tough it was emotional those guys you know really you know um, we did a debriefing or not really a debrief we just kind of a, an after action uh, not so much to review the incident tactically but just like is everybody all right kind of thing and, and there was some tears shed and you know and. and uh, I just think back, I'm like, man, you know, 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. A lot of guys were just, you know, it's part of the job, like suck it up, you know. And it's good to see people bringing awareness to it. Like, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have that, that, you know, to show a little bit of humanity. And we all get into this job for the most part, you know, because we want to help people and there's the human side of it. But like I said, we, we learn how to compartmentize that stuff and, and, and put this, this front up. Um, and, and we started kind of, we don't want to be that guy, you know, that, you know, it bothers me or whatever. So we, we try to be the tough guy. And, you know, I, I, you know, I did that for, for years and years and years because you didn't want to be the guy that was, you know, that had, you know, any kind of feeling about it. But that's not healthy. It's not, it's, it's, it's not going to lead you to any good place. Um, and so this kind of stuff, you know, I think is, it, it's tough to talk about that stuff. But like you kind of talked about, you talked about, uh, you know, we, we, you have to get it, you got to get it out there because I think the more people will understand that they're not alone, that there's other guys that have had those moments of, you know, we're like, holy cow, like, this is it, you know, or, or, you know, whether it's that or it's a, it's, it's marital problems, it's, you know, and that's, that's a very real thing. We've all, we all know guys that have had nasty divorces. We all know guys that have, you know, had just, just crappy things happen to them, you know, losing a child, losing, you know, losing loved ones that are, you know, way too soon or traumatic fashion. I mean, and, and that stuff, you know, you can't just assume that people are okay. Just because they're back at work doesn't mean they're okay. A lot of times that's, you know, people try to cope with, with those things by just trying to go about their life. And, and uh, you know, if there's anything I, I, you know, throw my two cents in it is just don't, don't assume people are okay uh, when stuff like that happens. Don't assume that you know, people, and sometimes it's not the guy that's a little emotional. Sometimes it's the guy that's super quiet and, and not saying anything. Yeah. You know, um, and so, it, you know, that's, that's where I'm at with it. I've, I've tried to, you know, kind of like Andy was saying a minute ago, you know, learn the size, 
those things up a little bit better because we we are so quick to go back to the firehouse and we get a tough call and just kind of like ah whatever busting chop joking and you know we, we sometimes kind of sweep it under the rug and, and, and don't uh, address the elephant in the room sometimes and they don't address the things that are you know that guy that's just a little off oh, I'm sure he's just you know he'll be fine he'll be fine well maybe maybe there's more to it than that so it doesn't it doesn't hurt nothing to pick up a phone. Or pull a guy and say, "Hey man, I'm here for you. Do you want to talk?" Okay. And that's and that's it. You know, guys think that there's a whole you know, peer review stuff or the uh, you know the the critical listening stuff is you know I, I got to get in there. I'm going to be embarrassed. I got to talk about the stuff. A lot of times it's just simple, like, "Hey, we ain't got to say a word." Yeah. You know, I'm just going to hug your neck and tell you I love you. That's it. And 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 be there for you. That's and it. that goes honestly. I mean, for most farmers, it seems like that goes further than than words any words could ever do I mean, some, there's a place for words don't get me wrong but I think you know hogging you know, someone's neck and just and just checking out from time to time uh, text like hey just touching base how you doing you know and not just when it first happens you know every you know every once a week if you, every few days whatever just follow follow up is is, is crucial right and, and that's a that's something I think we also got to remember is why well, I checked on well yeah, you checked on them one time, and then you didn't talk to them for six months. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's, you know, when people are going through stuff like that, it, it seems like you know, it, it's never a quick fix. It's, it's, it takes time to heal, and we got to remember that, that. You know, sometimes people need a little space before they talk. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just need, you know, they just want to know that someone's there. They want to know that someone cares, um, and uh, that's 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 been my experience with it. I mean, I've, I've had those moments of, of doubt, question. You know my own career in life, and, yeah. um, you know the the people that have made the biggest impact in my own life, and, and, and so you know just when I've had those moments of, of low points, is it's not anything special. It's not a done any money words or anything like that. It's just a simple thinking about you, brother. Appreciate you, you know, and uh, you know we we overlook that. We overlook the simplicity sometimes of. of Showing a little bit of humanity, showing a little bit of heart. Uh, it doesn't take uh, a PhD in psychology to be a human being and, and tell someone you love. Right. So I want to throw a couple of things out there, and I'm going to start with 97. And if you guys aren't 100% sure why that number is relevant, is because as of this morning, 97 of our brethren have died in the line of duty this morning. We're going to hit 100 before the end of the year. We were over 100 last year. The year before last was probably one of our best years ever where we were under 60. But Andy brought up a point. And this is something I want to go into, and and, and this is where we're going to segue into what you're doing in Texas. Jason Patton corrected me and, and a group of us one evening talking about suicides in our profession and at one point it was said to me well double or triple the number of the actual line of duty deaths in a year and that's what you're going to get when it comes to suicide right jason said stop quantifying it because one of the things that we have to remember so many of those instances are unreported the number is underreported, willfully underreported. And we can't 
put a finger on it, which is really fucking concerning, considering it is an epidemic. It is a crisis in our profession. Two things I've noted that bother me the most, and this is going back to the beginning of my career, and the way we solved problems back in the day was a big-ass chocolate milk. Paul Bateman, Keith Fleetwood, we'd sit out there on a park bench in front of a Dairy Queen at 9th and St. John's or a Handyway parking lot on 17 South in, in San Mateo or wherever we were after a bad call and have big-ass chocolate milk and have a talk. And that's just the way it was, right? Florida has come a long way, but it didn't come easy. And we're still losing brothers and sisters. And to that effect, they're getting younger and younger every fucking day, which is probably one of the most heartbreaking components to compound the thought of someone taking their own life. 25, 26, 24, 30. Young men and women who couldn't take it anymore, who couldn't find the outlet, who were shunned by their own peers, who, for lack of better terms, just felt hopeless and there was nowhere to turn. And we're not even getting into the substance abuse aspect leading to it or any of the other things that might have contributed to the end of their life. But we need to recognize this is a systemic problem in our profession. This is not something that we can just cover up with kumbaya moments and, and platitudes and we're going to do better. This is something that we as a profession, as a craft, as a service, owe each other to look out for each other when it comes down to having our brothers and sisters back and keeping our heads on a swivel to look for the warning signs. It's got to end somewhere. And again, Florida, we have the collaborative. We have UCF Cares and Restores. We have several other great organizations inside of the state that have worked with, and this is where I think it makes a difference, when you have these organizations engage with the professionals who are doled and, and well, trained, I should say, and responsible for being the assessors of our ill feelings and helping us find balance. It makes a difference in the outcome overall, right? It does. Statistically, I would like to say it does without having the hard numbers in front of me. But that isn't always the case, unfortunately. And we talked about EAP earlier and how scary it is yeah. to think that if I go to EAP, what is that going to say about me? If I say something about my mental instability, even if it's I'm not dealing with this well, how will I be viewed by my peers? Will I be trusted? Will they allow me to stay on a truck? Will they consider me a hazard? Because they might not think I'm capable of clarifying my feelings and I'm going to be a hostile party one day, a threat to their safety potentially. Is that the wrong approach? 100%. Because again, we're not fixing problems every moment. What can we do? We simply open our ears and we listen and we pay attention 
and we engage when we have to. But you and the work you're doing in your department in Texas, you're talking about three different stages that you've got with your program. And I want to kind of dive into that and the purpose behind them and where exactly those stages are today and how effective they've been so far. Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of fast forward through my injury and, and, and whatnot um, that I spoke about earlier that really drove me into um, a bad state of mind. Um, and this is where I developed my passion for the program. The cause was, unbeknownst to me at the time, the May Day. <clears throat> and then the aftermath was really the um, fruition of my PTSD, my anxiety, my depression, um, everything, all the ill effects that came afterwards, I didn't know that they were going to come. Um, I thought that perhaps, um, you want me to hold one? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we just had a beer exchange. That was, a, beer conversation. That was, that was a temporary beer exchange. He, he wanted to hold the beer, I promise you. <laughs> Not his hands. So, <laughs> Although I would, I'm just saying. But let's get back to where you so, are. I'm sorry. Uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, the, the onset of my, um, of my mental illness uh, came from the, uh, the effects of my call. And a lot of that came with um, unwanted attention. Um, I had to shut down my social media. Um, I was getting hundreds of messages. Um, can imagine when it hits the news, you know, local firefighter, this, that, and the other, all of a sudden everyone, not that I didn't appreciate it, but it was just really overwhelming for me. And I didn't want to revisit it every night before I went to bed by myself. That was not a good place for me to be, so I shut it down. Um, so going through that, um, and then basically being a divorced male out of a job well enough to be mobile and, um, make my way downtown after a couple months after surgery, not well enough to go back to the job yet. Um, I would frequent downtown Houston and I would frequent getting drunk plastic off my ass and drive. That was my thing. I lost all hope. I didn't care if I killed myself. I didn't care if I killed anybody else. Um, didn't really care to see my kids. I thought I was, you know, just pretty much trash to them too. Uh, I missed my promotional ceremony because I had gone out the night before, stayed in the hotel by myself, mind you. Um, no females involved as much as I wanted one that night. I was in no shape to get a female. Um, so I passed out and I woke up to a call from one of my chief officers asking where I was at because my ex-wife had brought my children to pin me. And I was not there because I was drunk in a hotel in downtown Houston. And that is the first time that I had broken down emotionally to somebody and told um, him that I had a problem and I needed help. But it took that, and that's scary, that it took that for someone to finally say, you're okay, we're going to take care of you. And um, the way that it was taken care of isn't the way that I have tried to um, foster in the current you know, fire service mindset right now, because back then it was still new. You know, we didn't have a peer support group. We didn't have professional counseling services. 
we didn't have a chaplain in our department. We had a chaplain organization, but we didn't have a chaplain in our department. I didn't have any of those avenues. So by taking care of me, what that meant was they're just basically going to forgive me for fucking up and we're going to move on and they're just going to kind of monitor me, which by the grace of God, um, I came out of it eventually. It was a long ass road. I would show up to, I didn't have a house for a long time. I would sleep in my car and I would go from job to job to job. I've slept at this man's house before because I didn't have a place to go. I would sleep at the fire station in my truck. I'd wake up at 5.50, shift changes at six. I'd walk in. One of our other best friends who was a battalion chief as well at Pearland would come in to give me a pass down and I'd fall asleep on him. And he'd be like, hey, man, you, you all right? You awake? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good, bro. And he'd give me a pass down and walk out, and I'd go to work. Sometimes I'd still be drunk on the fire truck. And uh, that was the lowest of the lows. And so when it's asked, where is this passion for this program that I put in to my home department now, um, that's where it lies, is I don't want anyone to ever have to go through that. And I know that some will, but when they do, I don't want to just say, not that it wasn't meaningful and it wasn't heartfelt, I'll be there for you and we're going to take care of you. I want to say, hey, man, I'm going to take care of you, bro, but check this out. I have this, this, and this for you. Choose one, choose all three, choose whatever you need. It's on the house. You don't have to pay for anything. They'll come to you. X, Y, Z, just throw the kitchen sink at it. We're going we're gonna to get you where you need to go. Okay. And the best part is no one has to know about it. Nobody has to know about it if you don't want them to. So that's where the program started. I mean, we talked about the wellness and fitness initiative in the very beginning of this program. And uh, I talked about throwing some weight equipment around and stuff like that. And then finally got, you know, back to me that I needed to add a wellness aspect to this. And so I started doing some wellness research. I started looking at what are, you know, these signs and symptoms of these people who might need this program. And I realized that I'm one of them. I'm like the leading candidate that needs this. So I go to the doctor, I get diagnosed PTSD, anxiety, all this stuff. Don't know how to deal with it at first. I'm calling my wife, I'm talking to her. I'm like, hey, what the hell is going on right now? Like, they're trying to put me on medication. I'm not right, I'm jacked up. Calling my dad, calling my stepmom, calling my mom, calling everybody. Cause I don't know how to deal with it. Cause I'm like, I need chemicals to operate proficiently is how I looked at it. So I started on the medications. And what I realized was it brought me back to a normal. It didn't change Jason. It did not change me. It brought me back to Jason. Um, not some guy who would walk around the corner and their kid, you know, jumped out of them and scared them. And I wanted to destroy my own child because he just scared the shit out of me. You know, like I, I can't explain to her why that's not okay. And so it's like, I need to figure myself out. So figured myself out, started this program. It's a three tier, uh, it's a three tier program. Um, it has chaplaincy, it has mental wellness, it has mental wellness, it's all mental wellness. It has chaplaincy, it has peer support group, and it also has uh, professional counseling services. Um, and all three of them are so intricate in uh, how they came about in their own right. Um, I, I will say this, the most important aspect of this program is the confidentiality. And I've worked for a municipality before, I know what EAP means, um, and a lot of folks stray from the EAP like you mentioned, mm -hmm. Jason. 
um, for various reasons. And the reason that I strayed away from using an EAP even approach or studying an EAP is because EAPs are developed for usually municipality and they're encompassing of finance, HR, parks, utilities, whatever. Not firefighters, not police officers, not EMS. And so I needed to develop a program for first responders that took care of first responders. And that's what I want to do first and foremost. And there's no, there's no better feeling than to take care of these folks with them knowing that their, their garbage is not going to be thrown out there to their supervisors, to their boss. And I'm not, I'm not knocking EAPs. There's a place for them, and I'm happy that they are in place. But a lot of times those people do not know how to handle first responders. Nope. I'm, I'm a product of going to a counselor and being told, I cannot help you. You need to go see X, Y, Z. I remember being handed uh, papers on how to breathe and focus and relax and count and, you know, here, take this, take this, take that. Your sixth visit is over and have a nice day when I've had to use EAP in the past. And I'm not ashamed of that. But it, it, and the thing that I think you're, you're pointing out very eloquently is the fact that um, when it comes to psychology, it's not a one size fits all period, right? Because you can look at the spectrum of psychology and you know there's all variations. But when it comes to first responders, when it comes to the personality types that we are, when it comes to the gung-ho mentality, the willingness to just sacrifice everything we are to save someone else, and that is a very sacred aspect of our profession. You brought up very poignantly 9-11. And something to consider is even after the first tower fell, they still went in the second tower to save as many lives as they could knowing peril was about them. It was coming. You and most everyone have come, well, you specifically came to a realization on your own when you could have had support, a structured level of support. And you're one of the very few that was able to find himself a path you brought up faith. Where did your faith fall into place here? True, man. That's that's deep. I like it though. Um, so going way back, uh, fourteen years old, I, my my grandfather had always made sure that I was in church on Sunday and the youth group on Wednesday. Got confirmed as a Methodist. Now, I consider myself somewhat non-denominational. Love my church, love my pastor, love my friends in the church. Um, it took a while to get there. Uh, faith has grounded me, and I, I respect any and all opinions on uh, what others uh, believe in or, or, or what have you. I don't want to, you know, necessarily segregate myself from them. Uh, in, in my eyes, my God and Christ tells me love everybody, so that's what I try to do. Uh, regardless of their age, religion, sex, uh, whatever, uh, <laughs> marriage preference, whatever. Um, so I try to do that the best that I can. Um, but during this time, um, I don't know if I was mad at God or if I was just denying him um, the opportunity to try to lead me uh, when that collapse happened. But when Really, when I met my wife, my current wife now, uh, we've been married since uh, 2016, 
2017. And um, we have had the best relationship um, all because of Christ. She's helped me grow so much. And uh, I call her my earth angel because I don't, I don't deserve her. I still, I still know damn well I don't. Um, she'll say different, but um, she's brought me and supported me in this journey so damn far in this pipe dream of mine that I have to share not only this story of mine, but also the programs that I've got to develop because of the people that have supported me. And I've always just kind of attributed back to God, obviously, uh, for putting me in the positions to be surrounded by great people. I mean, just even tonight, like I, I didn't fly up here knowing that this, this was going to occur. But I did fly up here knowing that God is going to put me in great positions. I don't know when, don't know how, don't know where, but I know that I have faith in my God. And if I trust in that, he will deliver because he always does. And so it's been a road. It's been up and down. It's been a roller coaster, but I've been so blessed for the last few years to find my relationship again with him. I know he never left me because I would not be sitting here right now if he ever did. And that to me is vindicating in itself. I always tell people, um, I'm a member of my church and I get to speak to men about leadership and the qualities that it takes to possess that leadership. But I get to do that on, you know, our church level. I want to do that for the fire service, you know, and I want to speak to them about these programs and what I'm pushing and, and, and I want to speak to it out of love, just like I do with the church. I am not a good biblical memorization leading person. You have one to your uh, immediate left who <laughs> is, is fairly good at quoting a uh, scripture. But what I do, what I do good at is loving people. Amen. And when Christ was basically cornered and said, what are the, what's the greatest thing of all? He says to love yourself or love your God with all your might and love your neighbor. Those are the two things that just stick with me is I love God and I love my neighbor. Everything else is going to fall in line. So that's what I do. That's what I do. I try to live my life just like that. Sometimes I slip up. I make fun of people. I do stupid shit sometimes. But at the end of the day, I know that God's got my back. So how many people have you been able to impact since starting your movement, your organization? And, and what have you done to grow it since creating it? Well, my, my official website launched a couple months ago. Um, and it's uh, ironcladwellness.com. And um, what that does is that provides the viewer with uh, kind of the services that I'm looking at to offer and to, uh, to promote in the fire service, come speak, um, coaching sessions, uh, documentation, drafting, help with um, um, the, uh, the uh, what was I going to say? Oh man, I had a brain fart. It happens. Um, the help with uh, grants. Okay. So grant assistance, um, I got to write and um, basically execute my first grant. And I got awarded the first grant in the fire department that's ever been applied for. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really cool. We got $244,000. Um, and, and, I don't know the actual numbers of impact and to me, and, and this sounds so cliche, but when you start this adventure and you 
have experienced what you've gone through, yeah, that's it, man. So when you experience what you've gone through and, and what you've done, um, you really don't, like you said, quantify. And you don't put, uh, you know, I've reached 200 people, I've made it. For me, it's like, dude, if I reach one person, if I change one person's life, I am doing the right thing. And anytime you implement a new program in the fire service, as I'm sure you all know, um, it is a struggle to sell. Um, firefighters don't like change. They don't like the way that things are. Very true. Okay. So they're going to bitch about everything, myself included. I'm a firefighter. I'm there with y'all. But um, I know that it's helped people. And so for all the naysayers, um, and there's not a lot. A lot of people support me. I don't want to make it sound like that. But there, there's been a few. There's been a few that challenge, and there's been a few that, you know, are kind of sticks in the mud, and, uh, we got to do this training again. But the fact that it's helped people, and I know that it's helped people. We had 20 people in a year, not even a year, nine months. We had 20 people reach out for counseling services. And that's counting first responders, that's counting their wives, and that's counting their children. Um, we've been able to provide those services. Our department has gone through a suicide um, of a um, one of the firefighters' children committed suicide. Our department went through that. One of our firefighters' brother committed suicide. We provided counseling for the entire family because we had the ability to do that because the things that we put in place for those incidents that I didn't know were going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking, okay, this dude's going to have stress at home. He's going to have a, a divorce. He's going to have financial problems. He's going to make a bad call. And then you're the counselor, and he's going to get fixed. Initially, that's that's what you think. Yeah. And then all this shit storm happens, and it's like, man, like, dude, we helped 20 people. 20 doesn't seem like a lot. No, it's a lot. But oh my gosh, like that is a number that far exceeds what I ever thought it would be. You know, we have a, a new layer of stress, as we all know, the last two years um, with this pandemic and, and how it's impacted um, public safety in general and, and the fire service. And, and my own personal experience is looking at members of my crew, whether they're on the EMS side or not, struggling to get through day to day, including myself and worried about going home and dealing with the repercussions of potentially bringing home something that could harm or kill their family and the stress induced when someone sneezes around you or coughs around you, especially in the early days of the pandemic, long before a vaccine was even out there for, you know, us to access and and take if we so chose. you have to think about the psychological impact because from my perspective, I would literally stay at the station for two to three hours after shift every morning, sometimes showering once, maybe twice, depending on how I felt. I would never go home in my uniform and then I'd go home worried and on edge and panicked and, and afraid that, well, I may not be sick, but what if I'm asymptomatic? Because you know they, they made that very clear. You can be asymptomatic and still transmit it. Right. And I think about the amount of stress that has caused 
our profession on top of everything that we have to deal with. And I wonder, is that anything you've encountered so far with your organization, people dealing with the daily stresses of the pandemic? Because I know talking to friends over the last two years, some who have been quarantined, I've been quarantined, friends of ours who have had COVID, some who were very sick and some who had a long road to recovery. And that impact alone was weighing heavy on their finances, if not their, their family life in general. Have you encountered anyone who has sought help to deal with that level of stress? Yeah, and I'm sure, like I said, I mean, the, the number of 20 people, I can't imagine any of those 20 people not having uh, an induced, uh, a heightened induced uh, stress because of COVID. I mean, I'm sure that that is, um, that is the, the part of the reason why they went. Um, but again, I mean, based on confidentiality, I don't know uh, why they sought help. However, um, I can, as a, as a district chief that's, you know, involved in four other firehouses and makes my rounds and gets calls off duty and questions, you know, for us, especially as chief officers, it's hard in middle management to try to figure out the right thing to do. We don't have a playbook for this. No. We have no playbook. And these guys come to you and you have the answers. Except when you don't and shit hits the hits the fan and you're like, bro, I don't know either. And, yeah. and they don't like that, you know, and rightfully so. I don't like it. I don't like having, not having the answers either. But I could sense a little bit of that with uh, with a good majority of my folks. You know, it's mm -hmm. probably 50-50, 50% don't give a damn about COVID. They still don't think it's real. They think that someone's going to put a chip in them or whatever. And then the other 50% is like, yeah, I got the vaccine twice. I got the booster five times I'm super vaccinated, you know, whatever. Um, and, and to each their own, you know, um, but it definitely affects, uh, there's a huge toll on the mental health side of things that I, that I feel, um, just even personal, you know, like you said, I mean, taking three, four showers, you know, not going home in your uniform, not being able to hug the kids, you know, without thinking about it. You know, I mean, that's all mental toll. That's all stuff that goes through our minds. I think what I'm saying is your organization would welcome anyone at any varying level of stress with open arms. 100%. And, and that is an outlet I think everybody needs to remember. It's not just about line of duty stuff. At times, yeah. it can be beyond your family. It can be what we're dealing with in society at this moment and the impact that it has on us because we have feelings too. We're human beings and it, it's the human effect the human condition. We don't necessarily ignore what's going on around us. I'm not saying that any one of us are conditioned to the level of superhero because we're not. We go home and cry just like anyone else. We go home and we scream. Sometimes we get into very verbal, you know, arguments with our loved ones because we're angry. And, and at the same time, what we really need is an outlet of support outside of our family. And it goes back to the, we're not here to fix our spouse's problems because it's not necessarily their job to fix it or our job to fix theirs. But there are peers out there that can relate to us, that can provide us that, that pathway to a level of in increasing one's faith, increasing one's mental stability, helping them cope 
which I think is something that we see less of is coping mechanisms. And that's why people tend to become destructive and self-destructive and they turn to the bottle, they turn to whether it's liquid or pill, or they turn to the other drugs that are out there. And we have that problem that continuously grows into that, of course, end result potentially of the taking of one's life. So organizations like yours are a perfect, I would say, nesting point or landing uh, point for brothers and sisters out there that really need like-minded help. That's right. Yeah. I think uh, probably the biggest benefit of the experience in the organization that I put together is, is ensuring and knowing that you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not licensed, but I've been there, you know, and there's a time for somebody who's a licensed psychologist that, that has studied first responders that, you know, has a degree in X, Y, Z that can come in and give you the help you need. But there's also a time for that person who just say, dude, I've been there. I know what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And that's all they say. And then the presence takes over to know that they have that web right there with them. And like you hit on about a lot about the stuff at home, and, and, and we talked about compound stressors tonight at dinner, mm-hmm. is it's not the dead baby call the night before. That's part of it, but the good portion of it is what we're finding is the compound stressor is the financial struggles at home. The You're never home because you're working three jobs. Well, you're just a stay-at-home mom and you're not doing shit. And that never goes well. And so now you got marriage troubles and now you got you know, divorce pending and, and X, Y, Z and, and, you know, the, the snowballs and people don't realize that, yes, there's military folks out there. I was in the Marine Corps for four years, but there's military folks out there that go out there and they do two tours or five tours or six tours and they see it for a year. They see it for nine months and they come back and God bless their souls. They're, you know, struggling with mental stuff too. We do this shit for 30 plus years usually. Uh-huh. 30 plus years of going out and seeing the same shit over and over and over. Which is why I'm pretty certain the statistical probability of the more than military in the line, well, the suicide aspect occurs because, yeah, a lot of damage can be done in 365 days in combat. There's no denying that. And I would never, ever begin to say that the military doesn't deserve the sure. best level of health care mentally and physically. Of course they do. We are all a brethren connected yep. by service. But even they know, and they're not immune to the fact because a lot of them do get into public service. A lot of them become cops or they become firefighters and they do this job. And some of them are a little better equipped than even our own to manage it because they experience certain levels of stress and combat. And maybe they're a little more dialed in. But then at the same time, the kids and I go back to these 20 somethings with barely a minute on the job and they have a few bad calls under their belt. And the next thing you know they take their own lives. They're gone. That life is erased. That beauty that was created by God no longer exists. There is nothing left but the memory of that person to keep inside of your heart. And the toll it takes, not just on the department, but the family, the family who suffers the loss. And that pain is eternal, unfortunately. And it's what bothers me. Yeah, I talked about it dinner a little bit, um, and this is this is just getting thrown out there. I mean, this is a thought I've had for a couple of years. 
Um, and, and I know suicide in the fire service has been uh, somewhat of an issue over over the last few years, and and we're really coming to uh, to be aware of it now. But if you look at station designs, mm-hmm. okay, and you look at individual dorm rooms now, and when they started coming to, into play, and you look at suicide rates, the upswing of suicide rates. And when you study suicide, when you start going into the courses and the train the trainers and so on and so forth, some of the classes I've taken, you start realizing that isolation is one of the number one aspects of suicide ideation. You do your best work negatively in isolation. And to speak on the faith front, where does the devil work best? He isolates you and he pulls you away from any relationship and Christ, right? And so when you look at the stations being built and it's isolation, 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 nothing warms my heart more than to walk into one of my firehouses that I get to supervise and I have the privilege to supervise and I see my men at the dinner table or I see my men sitting on the recliners watching a movie, men and women, mind you, I have some females on my shift, no, no disrespect, but I see them as a crew sitting there and, and enjoying one another's company. Yeah, most of them are on their phone or they're, you know, chit-chatting and shooting the shit with each other, but they're together doing it. And then I've been part of other organizations where you walk in and everyone's in their rooms or I'll go work another shift on overtime or, or a swap and everyone's in their rooms. No wonder they can do so much damage to themselves because they're not in relationship with anybody. They're taking whatever call they made, they're going back to their room and they're headed straight back over there, tuning into Netflix, whatever, and they're not getting anything off their chest. They're not talking. They're not talking. That is a valid point. And and something you brought up, the table. Women I'd always eat dinner at the table, but I'll be damned if we don't have coffee at the table every morning. We gotta solve the world's problems at the table. You know, and, and that is something I don't think people really truly understand the importance of anymore. Coffee talk doesn't have to be at seven in the morning before shift change or eight in the morning at shift change. It can be at three in the afternoon. It can be at nine o'clock at night, but there's something comforting about having that table, that safe place. Um, Greg Rogers, national rescue consultants brought this up in a podcast. Oh God, about a year or so ago, talking about that, that space where you are safe, where you go into with your brethren and you have that open dialogue and you can speak freely and have that conversation. Even if it's something that you want to get off your chest to one of your peers and you say, dude, you pissed me off because. It is a non-confrontational place, but that table holds sacred meaning. And that meaning is it is our time to relate to each other. And some of the best work I think and some of the best conversations I've ever had have been at that dimensionally shaped, that square table with a cup of coffee in my hand. Yeah, I mean, why, why, I mean even here, we have table talks. I mean, it's, it's at the conferences. Yeah. You'll, you'll get six or seven you know, badass instructors up there that'll have a table talk with the rest of the general population. And some of the best sessions that I've ever been to have been from table talks. But we are the gen pop. I'll say that much. We are the gen pop. Uh, Some of us might need to be in isolation, but you know, that being said, I I think that, um, I think we've covered a lot of ground tonight. I hope so. It was fun. And 
I'm looking at these beautiful faces, these weary eyes who stayed up way past their bedtimes. Andy's already asleep over there. You can't hear him snoring. But I don't I, have I, my CPAP machine. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh speaking of CPAP, by the way, three. I, I am a CPAPer. Nick is a CPAPer. Andy, you're 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 little Fabio over there. I've been a CPAPer for three years. Where are you at? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jake, where are you at? I passed my test. I passed my test. You know, they're overrated. I took a sleep test, I passed it. I think you cheated. I t- he definitely cheated. Yeah, he right, cheated. He studied. Oh, he studied hard, didn't he? See, see it how many you been, how many you being treated for low T? Oh, another thing. Okay. Brother from another moment. There we go. <laughs> the short guy and the tight end just high-fived in a very awkward fashion. If so I could I, describe it any better. I, I'm not a color commentator, I, but I can I, certainly I, I try. Strength. <laughs> the, there was strength because he knocked you back into the chair. <laughs> but I, I want to close out this episode with everybody just giving giving a few moments of reflection on Jason's story and the impact it's had on all of us this evening. And and we'll close it out there. But if you're okay, I'm going to spin this to Andy because I know right now he's about to turn into a pumpkin. Yep. So we got to get Andy on the mic. Oh, first of all, I, I apologize for doing something about it. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. Too many people complain about problems. And uh, but they don't want to do anything about it. That's what's the problem with the world right now. Everybody wants to blame everybody else. No one's want to take accountability and work on it. You took what you went through. As they say, there's no testimony without a test. And uh, interesting thing you brought up was you, when you said, I know, know how you feel. You can't know how somebody's feel unless you've been through it. When I started our behavioral health program, I asked everybody, I said, how many of you have been through something bad? They said, yes. I said, how many people want to in here want to help somebody? They all raised their hand. I said, how many of y'all had any specialized training? They said, no, none of us. I said, congratulations, you're hired because two out of the three, three requirements you had to have, one of which we'll give to you. They had to have heart and they had to have hurt. And you had both. Yeah. So empathy is a requirement. <clears throat> and each of us have been through something bad for a specific reason. And if you take that thing that everybody else views as you know a slight and you turn that into as I've learned, this place could be a detriment or it can be an opportunity. It was an opportunity for you yeah. and you maximized it. Yeah, so God bless you for doing that. Thank you. Um, some things that I want everybody to think about when they, when they go to bed at night, the fire service is big on identity. The, the two contributing factors to suicide from Dr. Joyner's work is perceived burdenness and thwarted belongingness and fr- fancy words for, if I feel like I'm a burden to this world and I don't belong anymore, and you took that to people who have a high capability of pain, basically we don't fear death. That's where the military has a higher rate because they don't fear death. Neither do we. So you, you hear, you hear those two words out of people's mouths. I don't feel like I belong. I feel like this place would be a better place without me. You better pay attention because that's when people start to head down that road. And it's not, a, as you said, it's a dark place. It's isolation. And you ask any inmate in maximum security prison, they'll tell you the worst punishment they ever received is being put in a hole. Because you go in the dark, they take away your hope. So let's not put people in the in the hole. Let's not put people in the dark. You got people who are struggling and you stick them on light duty. Don't stick them in a cubicle and tell them to get better right. and leave them alone. Put them with someone like you. Put them with a peer. Put them with a counselor. and Give them a plan, for God's sure. sake. Sure. You know, we have a plan for everything. Yeah. You tell me we can't have a plan for this. Military's had plans for this for years. Yeah. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know it's already there. 
All we got to do is take it, put our special spin on it, culturally sensitive, make it fit the fire service, get rid of the white coat and get somebody that wears a semi-denim jacket chore coat that says clinical culturally sensitive counselor on it. And they understand our woes and our, you know, things we do and they're not scared to talk to us. The next thing you know, you build a program. And and congratulations for doing that. Maybe someone else will hear your story tonight and say, maybe I can do the same. I hope so. so. Good. So, I mean, after everything we talked about tonight, the one thing that I want to point out to everybody that, you know, whoever listens to this is you said a lot about, I got you, bro. I got you, brother. Here's your options. Here's this. Here's that. You talked about brotherhood. And the one thing that I think the fire service is missing is they throw away or they throw around, I'm sorry, this term of brotherhood. And they're only throwing it around on a 2448, 4896, or 2472 basis. That term of brotherhood is 247365. And it's an action. And it has to continue to be an action. So when they send you pictures of intersections that they're hanging on to, you go pick them up <laughs> because that's your brother. And, and, yeah, it did happen. But <laughs> but when when they call you and they say I need to talk, you talk. When they when they call you and they say I need help, you ask them what you need and you go help them. We have to we have to get away from using this term loosely and we need to start acting on it. And what you're doing with your program and and what you did for the Side Creek Fire Department and what you did for Dr. Fletcher and for the chaplain group that you had up there was you acted in the most up uh, you you acted in the utmost respect of the term brotherhood and you turned it into an action. And that's what we need people to remember. And that's why I hope that, you know, whoever's listening goes to ironcladwellness.com and really books you or picks your brain, sends you an email, does something to allow that program to come into their fire department and understand that mental health and physical health is a huge factor in this job and it will turn that term of brotherhood into an action um i think that uh you know the lot of good stuff man and, and i appreciate the, uh, the honesty thank um, you i think honesty is you know if we're gonna ever overcome some of this stuff that we that we deal with this job i mean you know the, the mental stressors and we got to be honest about it you know we can't sit there and, and Sugarcoat it. Uh, we gotta, we gotta call it what it is. Uh, and you had something a minute ago that, that just kind of got me thinking um, about, you know, the way we design stations and, and the way that we've kind of built in isolation. And I think it's, it's not. It goes beyond just the way stations are designed. It's, it's everything from. I mean, even in the in the family environment, you know, how many families still have family dinners? put the cell phones down and they have everybody at the table yeah. and, and and I tell you um, I think it ought to be a rule in every firehouse that, that we eat together and and this it's a rule in my firehouse that and my guys know we have coffee morning briefing after we check the trucks out we all we have coffee in 20-30 minutes go over the plane for the day how you doing how's your days off all that kind of stuff uh, we, we eat our meals together and um even vegan, though? Even vegan. Bean burgers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even bean burgers. Why don't you tell them about your tofu bacon you ate this morning? Yeah, buddy. Mm-hmm. Sensation. Sensation. Yeah, but, uh, but, you know, the, the important thing is not that, you know, it, it got some special diets. <coughs> you know, 
the, the important thing is not that you know necessarily that you know hey we understand but we want to be together sure and i think that if you really want to draw anything from you know the, one of the biggest takeaways i had you know from that that what you're talking about there is how important it is to to have family both literal family and your fire service family mm-hmm. uh you know jason kind of talked about the uh uh you know the bumper like the call time and, and, and you know it's and jacob you, you talked about it as well i mean that is something that we've got to get back to i think as a fire service yes. it is put the dang the dang phones down let's go have a conversation and, and it doesn't I mean, it can just be silly stuff but just go sit you know sit in the detention bay out on the bumper sit at the coffee table you know eat those meals together you know work together be a team yeah. and you know that's the only way you're really going to get to know when someone's having an off day that's right. you got to get to know them. That's right. and the only way you're going to get to know them is you got to spend time with them that's right. and you know I've, I've always been a proponent you know I'm, I'm a young captain I mean I've only been a captain for three years now and I can tell you that uh, one of the things that I absolutely pledges to do is not to be the guy that spends the entire day in the office minus calls. Yep. I just, I, I've never, you know, I've, I've had captains, you know, growing up in the fire service that, you know, were really engaged with the crew and I've had guys that just can't find them unless there's a call or it's meal time. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you the ones that made the biggest impact in my life were the ones that were engaged and were asking, hey, how's, how's your family? How's, you know, everything all right? You know, how you pay? You know, out there training, sweating, working, doing, you know, and I get it. There's, and there, and my guys know, I mean, I, I try my best to hang out in that office uh, as much as possible. There's times where, you know, there's work to be done, but more often than not, I try to put it to the end of the day, you know, and there's many a night where it's well after they've gone to bed, I'm doing my paperwork and catching up, but I want to be present. And, and, and the reason why I bring that up is, is not to toot my own horn at all because. I can tell you right now that there's days where I'd much rather just go to bed when they go to bed instead of staying up and playing catch up. But it was ingrained in me early in my career. I had a very good captain who, uh, my very first captain, he, he insisted that we ate together, that we trained together, that we cleaned together. And he, you know, and he kind of said that early in my career, the importance of that. And, and Andy, you kind of brought it up about feeling like you belong. And you got to make your guys feel like you do belong here. Yeah. You do have a place on this team, and it is important that you know that we are family. We are, you know, first and foremost, we're human beings. And you know, uh, if, if you're going to have trust, then I'm going to have your back. That's it's got to be more than just words. Sure, it's got to be like you know, Jacob said a minute ago. It can't just be every third day. Sure. It's got to be you know, I got I got your back, not just when it's convenient. But when it's when, it, when we're tired, when when I want to go to bed, when you know when when things are you know are going awry in your personal life, like that's what right. do you need? Because that's you know at some point you got to put your money where your mouth is. At some point, if we want to legitimately address the problem, let's put the cell phones down a little bit more often, spend a little bit more time. And there's there's a, there's a thing I like to tell guys. I mean, the firehouse, our firehouse, is our sanctuary. <clears throat> Amen. And the kitchen table is our altar. Amen. We can lay off there, you know. And, 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 in the context of no matter what's going on politically in the city or, or the municipality or the district or wherever you're at, there's always politics. There's always less than stellar conditions that we deal with, right? There's, you know, there's there's drama on this, you know, this this crew, this ship, whatever. Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or this chief just came out with this policy and everybody's mad about it. Or, or the city's cutting funding for this program or whatever. 
you, you can literally go across the country and talk to firemen from all over the world. And we all have very similar problems, right? But when we go into that firehouse and it's, it's our company, it's our crew, that, that's our people. Yeah. No matter, I don't care what's that, you know, and I'm on, I'm on Sea Watch, right? I don't care, you know, at the end of the day, those guys that are under my, you know, under my, my command are, are my priority. I don't need to be worrying about what's happening to the firehouse down the road. You know, I don't need to worry about what, you know, Chief so-and-so said. Don't get me wrong. There's a place to address policy and all, all that stuff. But when we sit at that kitchen table, listen, guys, this is, this is, our, this is our sanctuary here. What you say at this kitchen table, this is our altar. Laid out that you got problems. It stays here, right? We handle our problems. We talk about them. We work through things. And this is our place. Those four walls, everything outside of it, close, close, close that outside the door. When we're in here, this is just us. And I think that that's a very powerful message that we need. You know, I think as a fire service, we got to do a better job, man. Um, I don't, you know, don't, I don't know, man. To me, as, as an officer, I, I don't let guys hide out in the rooms all day, you know, every single shift, you know, because to me, that's, that's counterproductive. And that's when guys do get in their own head. That's when guys start, you know, alienating themselves, isolating themselves. And, you know, you're not going to develop healthy relationships if guys never spend time together. So, uh, you know, I know that's a long-winded way of saying it, but, I mean, we really got to take that serious. We, we've got to get back to, to kitchen tables and front bumpers and coffee. And, and, and you know, technology is great. I, you know, I'm as guilty as, as anybody, of, you know, probably spending way too much time on my phone. Um, but when, when it's mealtime, when it's, when it's time to, to be engaged, you know, Give, you gotta give guys time to be able to catch up on stuff, but but I think there's importance in, in setting aside certain times in the day. Say, hey guys, everybody put their phones up. Let's come in here. And, and even, it doesn't have to be, you know, some three hour conversation all the time. Sometimes it's just 30 minutes, 20 minutes, just having a cup of coffee. But, uh, you know, I can tell you more often than not, once guys get in there and, you know, even the guys that are reluctant, oh man, I don't want to come in, you know, and we call it family time. For us, dinner time is family time, and right after dinner is family time. That's our time where we we, we cook a meal together, we sit down, we eat, mm-hmm. we clean together, we spend a few minutes just just catching up. Yeah, and it, and it could be talking sports, it could be talking hunting, fishing, whatever guys are into. But you know, it, you don't it don't always have to be super formal shop stuff. Sometimes it's just. You know, talking recreational stuff. You know, it's when the best stuff, stuff comes we, out. And, and, and right, and, the, and, and you know, the whole thing right here at the kitchen table, let rank go out the window and bother That's, you know, check your rank at the door. I mean, as long as stuff can, you know, be, be respectful, obviously, don't, you know, aside, <laughs> call each other, you know, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, on a humanistic I mean, level, be there's, respectful. There's a, there's a point where that's acceptable, and there's a point where, but you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You know, it's like we can call each other motherfuckers with love, and then there's, you know. Are we going by the Pablo rule, or are we going by the the, the Nick rule? I'm just trying to make sure on the quality of the fuck. Okay. We were talking about technology right, right, today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then we're going by the Pablo rule. Yeah, okay. The got Pablo it. Rules, yeah. But but the point is, I mean, you know, I, as long as we, you know, we can disagree, we can even have animated conversations with each other. Oh yes, but, we. Can. But before yeah. people get up and leave that table. We're shaking hands and hugging necks, and we're we're brothers, and that's mm-hmm. that's the point. Is you know, as long as guys don't you know start turning into, I'm going to personally attack you and your family. And start, start, I'm going to come over here. I'm going to you know whoop your ass and you know beat your dog. 
<laughs> she got all that other stuff. I mean, but uh, you know, that's what I tell guys. I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you know, know that know that we're at that table. It's sacred. That's our time to be brothers. That's our time to bust each other's chops, have a good time, talk shop, talk hunting, talk, you know, talk camping trips, talk family, because that's what we are. We are family. So, you know, it, it, brother, like I said, man, you hit the nail on the head. I think the fact that you identified those issues and and said, hey, you know, we got to do something to fix that because yeah. it is becoming an epidemic in the fire service. Um, and I think a lot of it is if we just get back to, to some simple things yep. um, of, of focusing on the family, focusing on our faith, focusing on the stuff that really matters when we walk off this job. Which is the you know really what do we leave? And I say this all the time. I know I probably broke the record, but when you leave this job, what do you what do you walk away with? Really, truly, yeah. Memories and relationships. Yeah, that's it. Because the badge is going to get turned in one day. You're going to hang your coat up one day, and and all you're going to be left with is are the memories that you made or didn't make, and the relationships that you made or didn't make. Yeah. And that's it. And that's, you know, when, when, when you're retired and you're gone or whatever, I mean, that's all you got to take with you. So, you know, my, one of the things I've been trying to do personally is, is to shift in my own life is get the priorities straight. Cause I, I, I can tell you right now, I got way out of, way out of kilter south several occasions where, you know, you get so ate up with doing stuff for the job or you got to do this and that, that you, you know, you neglect yourself, you neglect yeah. your family, you, you know, and, and you start getting out of, out of kilter and it's, you know, um, it's easy to get that way. Um, and, and that's, you know, people say, well, I'm not my brother. You know, I'm not my brother's keeper. Yes, we are. Mm-hmm. We are each other's keeper. And we've got to get back to doing that. We've got to get back to checking on each other and loving each other. And just being human beings and not, not getting so caught up in all the, the crap swirling around us. Yeah. So, so I'll, uh, I'll start obviously with, and again, coming on the show this evening wasn't something you planned on doing. No, not at all. And kind of designed in a way by your brother, two seats over to the left. But the purpose of this show is to deliver a message. No matter what that message is, it's important. It gets out because it has an impact or has the potential to impact many lives in this profession. We are all shapes and sizes, all backgrounds, all creeds, all different nationalities. It doesn't matter. But the term brother, again, we go back to that word brother. And each and every one of us have the like-minded definition and appreciation for that term. And I challenge every one of the listeners out there, if they're going to say that word, mean that word. Because one thing we did talk about at the table this evening was the stress of being a company officer or a chief level officer. We talked about the fact that we're not just looking out for ourselves anymore, someone looking out for us. We're looking out for the lives of our crew and they come before us. I've taken probies with four days on the job into their first fire and I've taken seasoned veterans into fires, and this is not a toot the horn moment, but this is a reflection. If something were to go wrong, it's my 
my cross to bear, my burden to bear, because it's my responsibility to make sure they come out of that building. And if something goes wrong, it's my responsibility to make sure that if they can't make that mayday, I can. I can get help to them. I'm with them. I help them. That is the responsibility we take. And it's something that people need to realize the sacred nature of that responsibility. And by what you do with your foundation, your organization, is you've taken that sacred responsibility of looking out for us. And I think that is what the biggest takeaway is. You went through a traumatic experience. You were at your rock bottom. Faith brought you out of it. Your connection brought you out of it to Jake. He was there with you. Your friends, your devotion. And now it's time to let others come to you and say, hey, I may not have been in a collapse. I may not have aid, but my life is a mayday right now. And who is going to be there to help me? Because if no one else is going to look out for them, us damn few are obligated to do just that. That's right. So I can't thank you enough for coming on this evening and sharing your story. And I want you to give the website one more time before I close this out. Yeah. So the website, uh, just understand it's not uh, as much of a business as it is a, a passion of mine. I, I'd love to help you out um, in any kind of um, document drafting, coaching, um, grant assistance, what have you. Um, the website is www.ironcladwellness.com. Um, it has all my contact information on the website and uh, all the content that uh, the you can basically read um, about what we stand for and you can get in contact with me on the contact us page. Just click on that, send me a message and it will email me directly. Outstanding. And with that being said, guys, it's not our normal close. No music, no pomps and circumstances, unless I decide to throw that in later. But we went to church. We went to church. You know what? We got to go to church for a third time, third time. Third time. And you know what? Jason Corthell, Nick Papard, Jacob Johnson, Andy Starnes. Well, I think you all know what you mean to me, at least now that I got to meet the tight end over here. Okay. <laughs> but the three of you both, or the three of you all know what you mean to me as far as, as being my brothers and who have been there for me and vice versa. And, and, and you especially, Andy, and restoring my, my faith and devotion in a lot of ways in the last year. Um, we're at Firehouse Expo 2021 this year. It's a very special, a very special event. I want to thank, um, obviously, Peter Matthews and, and editor-in-chief of Firehouse Magazine for helping put this event together and making it happen and for bringing these great instructors like Nick Papard, like Jacob Johnson and Andy Starnes, and soon, hopefully, Jason Corthell into the fold. Because without events like this, sometimes our message doesn't always get out there. So again, I want to thank our hosts, Firehouse Magazine. I want to thank uh, Peter Matthews. I want to thank the NFFF, the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, for bringing me up here this week to share in the fellowship that we do with that organization, how meaningful it is to be a part of that. So Rick Best and the entire team that makes these events happen for us to participate, I can't thank them enough. And my bestie, Mary Ellen Harper, let's go Harper, I should say. Um, Maryfield Ballroom B. And, 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 and here at the ballroom. But I want you guys to remember you are your brothers and sisters keeper. Keep your head on a swivel. 
and we'll catch you on the next one. Oh, we're two or more.